0: Good morning, everyone. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, um, there's a handful of them stuck in the back of the pews. Um, We are still digging through our storage and discovering what has gone missing, so it may be a few pews away from you, but feel free to get up and grab one if you like. Um, As Nick said, we will be in Ephesians chapter one this morning as we continue our series, um, called to be saints, focusing on our identity in Christ. If any of you um, have gotten to know me well, you know that I am a reader. It almost feels like an understatement just to say it. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, I used to say that all my friends had pages. Um, I'm a book person. That's, That's just who I am. If you come to me for a conversation about something you find is cool, or if you come for counsel, I'm probably going to ask, have you read dot, dot, dot? That's just the way that I engage with life. Um, as we've been going through this series looking at our identity, what I've been encouraging you to do is to kind of join me in viewing your own life through a literary lens. In other words, if we're going to understand who we are, we have to understand the story that we find ourselves in. Okay. And what Paul is doing here in Ephesians, and he does this in the form of... Uh, of a blessing, of, of a praise be to God, and then he walks through your personal history, the story you find yourself in, if you have come to be a believer in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so last week, we looked back at the beginning of the story and its origins in the heart of the author of the story, God our Father. And this week, we're going to look, if you will, at the middle of the story and the primary hero or the protagonist of the story in Jesus Christ. And as we look at this this morning, I want to use a literary framework to talk about just the climax of stories and how that climax plays out for Paul here and therefore how it shapes our life. And so toward that end, I'd like to read uh, Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse seven through verse 10. And let me unpack the pronoun as we start here. Paul is talking about Jesus, who he's just referred to as the beloved. And so speaking of Jesus, he says in verse seven, in him we have redemption, Let's take what we learned in our catechism this morning seriously and pray and ask God to utilize his word in our lives this morning. God, we present ourselves uh, and this passage to you this morning and we pray for an intersection between the power and truth of your word and our ears, minds and hearts. We ask God that you would show us uh, the story that we find ourselves in and therefore who we are in Christ and that we would embrace this story as our own to the praise of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In a good story, or you could say in the classical sense, in a comedy, in a good ending, in a happy ending, There's always gotta be a part in the story where something changes. And part of the reason that's the case is because good stories that start as good stories, continue as good stories, and end as good stories aren't really stories. They're too static. We don't tell stories uh, that don't involve some sort of crisis. It can be a crisis of circumstance. We like to tell stories about orphans. It can be a crisis of, uh, of animosity where a villain has done something horrible, you know, where Harry's parents have been killed by an evil wizard, right? There is always a problem, and so to get to a good ending, there has to be a solution, and those solutions take different forms, but I want you to notice this morning that we see three different versions of that, or aspects of that, or three defining characteristics of the climax of history in Jesus Christ that have changed your personal history, okay? And the first one I want us to notice, uh, we're going to call reversal, which again is is a literary term. A reversal is when something changes, where things go from one way to another way. And oftentimes they are surprising, oftentimes they involve intervention, and most importantly, they involve change. Okay, and so, uh, so look here again at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Both of those phrases, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, are phrases of transition. They talk about what was and now what is instead and it does so in the framework of opposites. In other words, not on a gray scale of good, better, best, but in a binary scale of bad, good, okay? And so when it says here we have redemption, the contrastive state, apart from that, the place we were before we were redeemed is slavery. That's what you do. You redeem someone from slavery. In fact, the primary biblical image of this word redemption is the exodus in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are slaves in the land of Egypt and God redeems them. And how does he redeem them? By setting them free and bringing them out of Egypt. Okay, that's redemption. Okay, and so Effectively here, if we were to put this in Paul-like, our author Paul, Paul Paul-like language from another place, he would say, and you were slaves but have now been redeemed. It's the same with the second one. The second one says we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, okay? And so again, we have the same binary thing. The idea here of forgiveness is not, again, a grayscale but a transition from condemnation and guilt to forgiveness, okay? And we could actually add to this list, whenever the Bible talks about what has happened, if you become a believer in Christ Jesus, it uses these binary, drastic, disparate terms. You were dead and are now alive. You were darkness and are now light. Okay. You were condemned but are now forgiven. You were slaves and have now been redeemed. Okay. That is a reversal. That is a change in status and let's recognize that the fate completely changes in that change of status. Okay? So if you were a slave and are a slave and will be a slave, that defines your life. It shapes its limits. It tells you what life is going to be like. It it presents a quality of life, if you will, and not a good one. But if you are set free, that's a change. Your fate, your destiny, your future, your daily life, all transitions, okay? It's the same with condemnation. Speaking of books, Franz Kafka wrote some of the most frustratingly despairing works in literature, okay, works that if you enter into enough deeply may actually cause you to have heavy anxiety. One of them, the trial, is about a man who discovers that he has been accused of a crime and that he is going to be sentenced for this crime and so he goes about setting things right. But he discovers that any lawyer he applies himself to is also accused of a crime. He discovers all of the just, if, if you think you know bad bureaucracy, you've never read a Kafka book, okay? He creates this world where every step is frustrating and there is no outlet of appeal, no way of setting things straight. And to be honest, friends, Kafka doesn't write fiction. He writes fiction that illustrates reality, and that was his despair in the universe. He looked around and he saw a world, he saw himself as guilty, and he saw a world full of guilty people and no way to set that straight. If you read the portrait of Dorian Gray, you find a similar world, okay, where a man wants to live in a life without consequence, and magically gets the opportunity for all consequence to be laid upon a picture of himself, a painting, instead of his own life, and goes without consequence as long as he can until he sees himself depicted in the painting and the spell is broken and, and all of the, I mean, to be really frank, if you read the book, venereal disease and uh, strain on his body just comes to bear and he drops dead right there. Okay. Again, an author wrestling with the reality of the problem we find ourselves in. If I were to put this differently, the idea of forgiveness here could be this way. And you were on death row. But you have been forgiven. In fact, the word justified, which is if you've grown up in church or if you've read the New Testament, a word that's used very often, is a legal term. It means that you are no longer condemned, but have been sentenced sentenced as no longer condemned. Okay, it's, it's a legal action. And so again, there's a transition here. There's a change in quality of life, and most importantly, there's a change in fate. Now I want you to notice two things before we go on from this idea. Um, one is that uh, the way this language is used, these two illustrations have attention to them. They tell slightly different stories. Slavery is something that is imposed upon you. It is something you cannot escape from, okay? But condemnation is something you did to yourself. It's something you deserve. In, in one, you are an unwilling participant. In the other, your will is fully engaged. It's your choices. In one, it is imposed upon you. In the other, you are active in the decisions you make. The Bible uses both terms to describe why we need a savior. Okay. The second thing I want you to notice here is how this transition came about. What does it say? Let's look again here at verse seven. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So in this transition, in this reversal, what do we bring to the table? Need. Okay. In fact, the only time it mentions something that belongs to us here by name, it's our trespasses, according to our sins. Okay but when we look at how we were redeemed, it says through Jesus's blood, okay? And when it says how are we forgiven, it says according to the riches of his grace, okay? In other words, there's there's two ways a reversal can go in a story. Sometimes we have a hero, and the hero has to overcome his obstacles. He has to overcome the difficulties he has to defeat the bad guy he has to break his way free okay so going back to this idea of we wouldn't use the word redemption but of slavery the idea here is that you either earn your freedom or you escape from slavery but you are the active agent you are the protagonist you are the hero you are the actor but we also tell stories about deliverance. We tell stories where somebody's condition is changed, not because of their own action, but because of the action of another, okay? So here, I want you to notice that that is the story we find. In fact, and we'll see this more as we continue on, if you look for a hero in the story that Paul is telling here in Ephesians 1, it's clearly Jesus, okay? Okay? How do you know who the main character of a book is? A good way to guess is who's focused on most of the time. This is why I don't like Russian literature, because I can't keep track of all the characters. Okay? But here, if we want to know who primarily Paul is talking about, you just need to follow how many references there are to Jesus, and how many personal pronouns refer to him. Let me just, you know, to, to lay it on really thickly here, let me just read through this whole passage and listen. in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, notice this, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And we could continue.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: But what I want you to notice here is that your personal story in Christ has been grafted into a bigger story. And in that bigger story, the story of history, the story of God's action in the world, Jesus is the primary figure. This is why we call Jesus a savior or a deliverer or even a redeemer. It is a recognition that because of the actions of Jesus Christ... Our personal lives have changed, okay? In fact, go back again to this idea, redemption in his blood, okay? Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He sees this transition in our life coming at the cost of a life and not your own, the life of Jesus, and so Paul doesn't unpack this here. He will at length later in Ephesians. But effectively, the Bible proclaims that Jesus died the death that we deserve after living a perfect and sinless and innocent and God honoring life that we cannot live. He stood in our place. And because of that, we are forgiven. And not only that, but in doing so, he conquered the great villains of the story namely, death sin and the devil okay now that last one might be a little weird for you in a modern setting but you will not escape it in Ephesians one of the major emphasis in this book is how Jesus relates to the powers and principalities that's why it says there at the end of verse 10 that in Jesus it's going to unite all things under Jesus not just on earth that's you and me but also in the heavenlies okay things are not right in the spiritual realm and in Jesus Christ, they will be set right, okay? But the villains here have been defeated through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. The villains here have been conquered. Our freedom has been gained through the actions and efforts of Jesus as well as our forgiveness, it says. Uh, uh, look at um, verse eight, which he lavished upon us, okay? And right before that, according to the riches of his grace, Okay. Here's another way to think of reversal, okay? So, so the first one involves active intervention. It involves, you know, the prince saving the princess. It involves the hero rescuing the hostages. Rescue's a good word, okay? But the second way to think of this is in terms of debt. And especially when it comes to the fact that we stand as condemned and in need of forgiveness, the Bible uses this language of economic debt, okay? A debt that we put on ourselves through our own rebellious choices against God. A debt we put on ourselves because of the way that we mistreat ourselves, each other, and the world that God has made. Okay. And so here, how is it that we find ourselves no longer in debt? Because of the riches of God's grace which he lavished upon us. Okay. So in this story, your little orphan Annie... And what changes your life is the adoption of Daddy Warbucks and the access to the resources of his wealth. Okay, same idea here. But again, remember here that although it uses the imagery of money, the word grace in and of itself says the same thing that we've been seeing over and over again, which is that this is a gift, which is that this is undeserved which is this is not God responding to what you've done and gone, oh, I'll meet you halfway. But according to his grace, because of his character, he freely saves us in Jesus Christ. Okay. This is reversal and is essential for you to get. It's why the New Testament hammers this home. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now he goes on and he describes that death in detail and it's probably worse than you think it is, okay? The Bible's depiction of the problem with humanity is very bleak. bleaker than any other philosophy or world religion I've ever encountered, primarily because it believes that this is something we cannot fix. No amount of pilgrimage, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of fulfilled vows can rectify the problem, which is why here Paul just says, you might as well be dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, okay? At that point, the ability to fix it is not present. And notice what it says in verse 4, but God. That little word there is classic reversal language right this is what was but okay but god being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ okay so how do we go from death to life in this scenario the direct resurrecting intervention of another party We don't earn life. We don't make life. We are given life. Okay. And so this reversal is at the act of another one, but you have to embrace and rejoice and understand and take in the transition that has happened in your life. Okay. When Amazing Grace says, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was wretched, right, but now have been embraced into the family of God. It's this same reversal transition. And again, it is a change of fate. No longer condemned means no longer in fear of judgment. And it's important to recognize here that this language is at past, present, or future tense. Are you being forgiven? Will you be forgiven or have you been forgiven? past tense have have in the same way will God redeem you is he putting this on a trial run of freedom to see how you behave or has he f- redeemed you past tense okay if you are a believer in Jesus Christ you are no longer a slave to sin to death and the, to death and the devil if you are a believer in Jesus Christ you are no longer condemned and your sin no longer stands between you and God. You are no longer, as Paul calls us in Romans chapter 1, by nature children of wrath, but are now children of the living God. Okay. That's reversal. This is, by the way, what we mean when we use the word gospel. Gospel. I know for us in our modern world, gospel is a religious term, or maybe one you see on the music charts, right? But the original use of the word is political. Gospel is what happens when the emperor of Rome saves your city from the barbarians, okay? What's proclaimed in the city is good news, you have been delivered, okay? It is a story of intervention, and reversal. And the Bible harnesses that language and says, we have even better news. Okay. So this is one way to view it, but Paul doesn't stop there. Notice as he continues on here, he says, which he lavished upon us, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Here's another way that stories change through revelation. Okay a reveal, okay? You discover that Darth Vader is Luke's father. You discover, like in a Shyamalan movie, that Bruce Willis is dead, okay? This is something that is, but is not known. And that's why it uses the word here as mystery. And this is another one that when we think of mystery, we think of unsolved crimes, right? We, We think of murder she wrote. We think of things like this. But the word here doesn't mean that. It means something that you could only know if you were told. Okay. And so I like the word secret. What it says here is that God made known the secret of his will. In other words, his plan from the beginning, as we've already seen, was moving towards this, and now he has revealed it. Okay. Now, shocking reveal, a sacrifice has been provided for your sins. And I want you to notice here that this action is essential. God doing what God did in Jesus Christ and you dying without ever hearing it is not a good ending. But what it says here is that God is the active revealer. He is the proclaimer. He is the first evangelist. He is the one who is proclaiming to the world, yes, this is where you are, but you no longer need to be this because good news, like the herald coming in Rome into the city. Good news, this is what has happened on your behalf. Okay. And this idea of revelation in literature also plays a significant part in changing endings. I'm reading a book by George MacDonald right now, who was an author prior to the days of C.S. Lewis, who C.S. Lewis said, I never wrote anything in which I didn't quote from George MacDonald. He was one of his major influences. Um, But the story is about a young boy who is mute and born to a drunken cobbler and lives his life basically without any sort of support except for the handouts he gets on the street. Um, But because it's all he's known, he's relatively happy. What he doesn't know is that his dad, although he was disgraced, is in the family of the Galbraiths, who have a long lineage in Scotland But Gibby doesn't know this, except for the fact that everybody calls him Sir Gibby, but he just thinks it's a nickname. He goes on about his life. His father dies. He flees the city. He lives in the mountainsides in the midst of stranger, but he happens to live right next to the manse of the Galbraith family. Glasruach, which is probably not right. But nobody knows that he's the sole inheritor of the will of this whole place, including Gibby. And so what changes his story from being a poor orphan without a family or future? Revelation. Suddenly, facts are revealed. Things are made known. Okay. What God has done in your life, as the gospel has been proclaimed to you by loved ones, as neighbors, as you've opened the scriptures and read the truth of what God's done, is God's active revelation of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. This is why we take so seriously the call to proclaim this good news. But that's not something we do because it's ours, it's something we do because God is doing it, has done it, will continue to do it, and we join him in that work but revelation is, again, something that changes our lives. It's, it's the reveal. And here is the reveal of history. Bruce Willis is dead, but Jesus is not. He's alive. And that changes everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything you know is wrong. And I mean that in the big objective sense on the meaning of the world as we know it. And I mean it in the subjective sense of your personal history and future. It changes everything. And if you remove that, you don't only lose Christianity, which Paul is very clear on in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not alive, then we are dead in our sins. It's as simple as that. Easy equation. But if you remove that, it changes the path of history. In the big and in the small. Okay, so this is Revelation And again, I want you to notice that the primary actor here is God. It was his plan and his action, and part of his action is to proclaim the action he's taken so that all would know, okay? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, notice this in verse 9, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of the times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth now notice what that says it says here effectively that Jesus Christ becomes the bottleneck of history the center in fact the word here that's used for um, to unite all things this is this is such a weird word okay the place where it occurs the most is for the heading in the top of an essay It means to gather all things under one heading. In fact, the word for head that's used throughout Ephesians, when it says that Christ is the head and we are the body, is is built into this little word here for unite. But effectively what it says is in the chaos and disparity and senselessness of our world, God has come up with a plan to make sense of it all by tying it all and centering it all around one person, Jesus Christ. And through that, he will reconcile, this is Colossians language, all things, okay? Make all things right. Put everything in its right place. Bring justice as well as life, okay? This is the idea here. And this is the last literary way that stories change to good endings. It's a resolve, okay? And, and these things are woven together. We can't really separate them. But effectively what this says is we know the ending of history and it ends with Jesus on the throne and the world set right. Okay. But what makes it a good ending? Because Jesus is on the throne and therefore the world is set right. right? It flows through here. It focuses here. It centers here. And he's going to make clear throughout the letter how these things fit together. But again, we have to recognize this morning that history has a hero. That history has a protagonist. That there is a central character to the story of humanity. And that central character is the Son of God. Okay. That is what's stated here. And it, uh, it's... It's so big. Let's, let's just look at one version of it in verse uh, 20 uh, at the end of the chapter here. He's talking about the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice two things there. Jesus has been placed above all things. And we have been placed in union with him. Okay. When it says here, he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Okay. There is a, again, a gathering up of all wrongs being righted in Jesus and then us being grafted into Jesus. That is the resolve. It's too big to describe. You need an entire New Testament and more to articulate what this entails, how it works, these types of things. But what I want you to notice this morning is what will make sense of your life. Christians, brothers and sisters, what will resolve the great tensions, what will bring about the righting of wrongs, what will provide the rest and peace, is this story with this hero who has been crowned, as we saw and prayed this morning, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These three different ways of thinking about this, of a reversal, which focuses on a change in our status, of a reveal, which focuses on us coming to know what we did not know, and of a resolve, which focuses on everything coming right in the end through Jesus Christ. This defines every moment in your life. Just as we saw last week, if God is the author and the story begins in his loving heart, then we can trust that it's a good story. But here we have another piece to add, which is if the primary and central reality of what God has done, the climax of the story of your life is right here, 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And everything in your, in your life gets traced to that. This is important because for some of us, we are constantly haunted and defined by our own failures. But Christ has died, and you have been forgiven, and he is alive, and you will, you will be with him. When you struggle when you wrestle with your own sin nature, when you feel the presence of death in this world and you recognize, as we all do, this is not how it should be. Ultimately, in Jesus Christ, it is not how it is. And when you wonder what God is doing in your life, when you wrestle with if he's present in your darkness, or if his character is really good and loving on your behalf, the New Testament always points us in the same direction. By this, we know love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know where God is taking you, and if he's present in the present tense suffering that you're experiencing, if you want to know that you can be confident that the wrongs will be righted, And that the worst parts of you will be worked out. That he who began in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to hold on to those things, you return to the cross of Christ. You return to the recognition that out of the lavish dispensing of God's grace, your status has changed and with it your future. Again, just because a story has a climax doesn't mean that there's a resolve, finish, it's over, and happy, happily they lived ever after. Think of Lord of the Rings. When the ring goes in Mount Doom, as much as most of us would wish, the book doesn't stop there. And what we actually find is skirmishes back in the shire that still have to be dealt with, but the meaning of those skirmishes has changed forever. We talk about this with World War II, right? There was fighting after D-Day, But D-Day was the definitive victory. I'm not promising you a life that won't be war. I'm not even promising you a world that won't be hell. But I'm promising you that the change is already assured because the victory has already been completed. That's why Paul says, nevertheless, we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Not because we won't suffer. Go read the context. What does he say right before that? For your sake, God, we die all the day long. Nevertheless. Nevertheless is reveal language. He pulls back the curtain. It says, hold on. Hold out. Keep remembering. Okay. What I'd like to do, I'd like to read this passage again slowly. And I want... I want us all to do what the catechism exhorted us to do this morning was to take these things into our heart, to not just grasp them with our head and not just assent to them, let alone just let them flow over us as we think about, you know, is playing football today, but instead to receive it, to own it, to reorient your life around it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, This lavish grace that we've been talking about, this forgiveness and freedom that's available in Jesus Christ, this plan for the fullness of time to set all things right, that is just as available to you. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing we did to make it happen. It's freely offered to you, and you can receive it. You can place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Take him as your Savior and your Lord and change your story, because God has changed it in Jesus Christ. All right, let me read this again. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, I know for myself, I tend to interpret my future through my present. I feel about the future based on what I feel right now about the present. And I also tend to interpret my present based on my past. I take my regrets and the difficulties of the past and this long trajectory of human life with all of its weakness and suffering and I just assume that trajectory into the future. But you changed history. You intervened. And in that intervention, everything changed. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to bring the past tense reality of what you've done in Jesus Christ into the present. That we would view our present sufferings, our present struggles, our present callings and decisions through that lens. And that we would sightline it. Organize it around the trajectory of where it's all headed because of that reversal. Father, sometimes your word just calls that repentance. Sometimes it calls it faith or trusting. Sometimes it calls it rest. Sometimes it calls it waiting. But all of those are built upon what has happened what you have done, and that is the definitive climax of our personal history. Everything else flows from that point, and nothing will change the flow. Help us to receive that, and to rest in it, and to repent in it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna continue with worship. Let's use this time to respond.